from GreenBiz Group. Welcome to this week's edition of 350. I'm Joel McCower. This week in St. Louis, Missouri, on this week's edition, meet the 2019 Verge Vanguard, what's coming up at Climate Week, the circular ambitions of the Fab Lab, and when it comes to climate change, is more news good news? We're burying the lead this week on 350. It's September 20th, 2019. Happy almost fall. And welcome to this week's edition of Green Biz 350. Joining me from her garden in Midland Park, New Jersey, is Green Biz Editorial Director Heather Clancy. How's the garden, Heather? It's growing. Actually, it's waning, but <laughs> I will be doing some perennial maintenance this weekend. I did a little last weekend, but I love this time of year. It is beautiful in New York, as you will discover in person next week. Yeah, I'll be there on yeah. Friday. Yep. Uh, I, I'm yep. actually... Uh, I'll be there any minute now, but based on when this uh, this podcast is is running. So uh, yeah, look, look out. <laughs> so yeah, I'm here in in uh, St. Louis, actually in Chesterfield, Missouri, which is just part of the St. Louis Metroplex, and we are having our uh, second of three September events uh, for our Green Biz Executive Network. This one hosted by. Bayer North American Crop Sciences, part of the big German multinational pharmaceutical life sciences company. And it's uh, always interesting to hear and see what's going on, in this case, talking about the future of ag. That is quite a mouthful of a name. <laughs> <laughs> I know, I know. Well, uh, but uh, you know what? Speaking of mouthful of names, uh, we had, uh, I'll just well, stick to just two words, Verge Vanguard. We launched it this week on Monday, our annual listing of the 20 people uh, in uh, leaders in technology and sustainability. And you, Heather, were driving that. Thanks, first of all, for making that process happen and come out so well. But what did you think? It was my immense pleasure. And whoo, <laughs> boy, uh, well, what did I think? I spent a lot of time curating this list, as you know, over the summer. And uh, we spent a lot of time looking for people as well as getting some tremendously wonderful nominations from outside in the Verge community. This class is just an amazing group of individuals. First of all, I just, I was struck by the diversity of, of points of view and of, of, you know, skill sets. There's a lot of uh, PhDs on this list. I, my, my, the one that a person that I personally wrote on was Lisa Dyson, and she's got PhD in physics. Um, she's running a, a company called Coverti in carbon removal and, and carbon sciences. Uh, but also she's got this really cool newer company called Air Protein that is basically turning carbon dioxide emissions into protein. So amazing, amazing group of individuals per persevering in markets that didn't really exist. They're creating markets. And I was thrilled to see the, these people come to life in the profiles. Yeah. And, and as, speaking of diversity, they, they came from big companies like Cummins and Ford and General Mills and Ikea, but also from a lot of startups, Coverti, as you mentioned, and Lanza Tech. And, 
and and just some people who have been out there you know doing things uh, in some in some cases in the NGO world and some cases in the public sector um, you know our friend Kate Daly the managing director of closed loop partners looking at circular cities so uh, really interesting and um, you know we have uh, people from um, winners from uh, Nigeria from a number of different countries so really a good list and we will be playing uh, some excerpts from that as we get into this program. First up is Lisa Dyson. As we mentioned, she's uh, with Coverti and Air Protein. Coverti helps companies like P&G work in their supply chains to turn carbon emissions and into materials that could be used for everything from plant nutrients to packaging. And then the sister company, Air Protein, transforms CO2 emissions in a matter of hours into a substance that has the same protein profile as meat. Here's Lisa. My advice to entrepreneurs would be to, to do big things, to, to do things that are transformative and that will have an impact on, on, the, on the world and show how that will impact a specific business, uh, how that will make that business better, how it will allow them to have a competitive edge, how it will allow them to get more customer pull. And the customer pull is there. Consumers want more sustainable solutions. Consumers want these supply chains to be remade. And so if you're, you, you boldly go in with your innovative solutions that will re- remake these supply chains and show how consumers are demanding it and how, how companies will be able to, to benefit by giving the consumers what they're demanding, then I think you'll be able to have those conversations. Doing something different is hard. You know, NASA started uh, with, with, with some of this work that we're doing and they didn't finish. They didn't go far enough. NASA could not or did not, um, you know, get this to a point where it could be commercialized, uh, kind of the core technology that we started with. And so we had to do what NASA couldn't do. And so being able to just know that that could be done, you know, and to persevere and continue to do it, kind of continue to work on that hard, the, the hard scientific problems first, and then know that there were commercial solutions there once you could solve those, those hard problems. You know, I think it's, is, is not perhaps not typical with a, with, with starting a company. Uh, and, and, you know, that was something that, that, you know, I focused on and with, with my team and, and just, it just had such an amazing team along the way. My co-founder, you know, has been here the whole time and the team, the, the people that we work with are so committed and devoted to, to having an impact. And there's such, you know, intelligent, you know, great people that I've, I've been honored just with the effort that they've put into commercializing, commercializing what we're working on and making it successful. So I think that, that, that helps a lot to be surrounded by such great people that are so supportive and, and investing so much of their time and their effort, their hours on this earth, they're investing to have this impact. Uh, and just to be around that is energizing. Two more of those segments coming up, but for now, let's move over to the Week in Review. I'm going to go to your pun uh, that you started the program with this week, which was your great essay, uh, Climate Change in the Media, More News is Good News. And in this case, yes, more news is good news. There is a, a marked increase in 
in climate coverage this week. That comes because of one big project that we have become involved with. And I'm hoping you can tell us a little bit more about that, Joel. Yeah, I will. But I don't think that the marked increase is necessarily because of this this uh, new initiative called Covering Climate Now, which is this global collaboration of more than 250, close to 300 now, I think, news outlets that are trying to strengthen coverage of the climate story, as the soundbite goes. And uh, we, of course, are part of that, along with some big organizations. This is organized by the Columbia Journalism Review, The Nation, and The Guardian. And we're all sharing content for 40 newspapers, 150 or more magazines and online publications, and uh, three scores, you know, 60 or more of uh, broadcast outlets to try and uh, just get more coverage out there about what's going on. But as I said in this piece that ran earlier in the week, it, it that didn't that's not the sole cause of this. I think we've been seeing more and more coverage. And what's been interesting, uh, as I noted, is that the the coverage is morphing from uh, climate change as a controversy to climate change as a crisis, which is to say that it's no longer about is it real and how bad is it and all that. It's like, well, how do we deal with this? And what are the stories around adaptation and mitigation and carbon sequestration? In other words, the climate solutions. And so this has been going on uh, over the past uh, really a year or so as we've seen the impacts of, of a cl- changing climate play out, the, the f- opening acts of what seems to be a long-running uh, show that's going to be crashing on our shores literally in, over the coming years and, and probably decades. Uh, and so the media is finally, finally stepping up to this, uh, looking at this as, uh, as the crisis that it is, and then saying, okay, we're in a crisis, what do we do? And uh, it's a, you know, there's still a lot of room to grow and change. And there's still a lot of, you know, sort of horse race kinds of things about the Green New Deal or, or, you know, is it good or bad? And it's like, okay, those are good to debate. But what about uh, the growth of renewables and, and not just electric vehicles, but lots of other technologies? What about the communities that are being challenged, particularly the marginalized communities who are already suffering economically and in other ways and probably stand to get the, the biggest hit uh, from the extreme weather resulting or, or exacerbated by climate change. We hear a lot about Greta Thunberg and the youth movement, but a lot of it's, um, you know, sort of isn't this interesting as opposed to what are they actually standing for and what does that mean and how do we get from from here to there? And so there's a lot of stories uh, still to come. And the good news is I'm, I think we're starting to see the mainstream media um, and, of course, lots and lots of, of niche, niche media, you know, play this out. And just a lot less, I think that, you know, the you know, the hoax part of this is really relegated to some pretty um, far-right websites, uh, online media companies, um, and, of course, Fox News. Uh, but it's even they, I think, are playing this less. I think that even they're starting to, you know, leak into their coverage, uh, you know, more uh, people saying, yeah, we got a problem here. We got to deal. Yeah, deal know, with it. Yeah, I, I and I love that point you just made. I will say that I do think um, one thing that the that our audience, the, the corporates, right, the biz, big businesses that are taking action on this, I think that one thing that they need to anticipate is that this will bring more scrutiny of their commitments, and which means more follow up about their commitments. And I think that what 
what we need to see from from our like I said our traditional readership is they're going to need to get a lot more sophisticated about how they report and talk about their progress or lack thereof right so if you if you didn't make a goal to get out there and admit it and to talk about why and what you're doing so I feel like that we, this the thing that people should note is that this is going to change the, the dialogue, right? They're not going to be able to, to hide, <laughs> if you will. Not that people have been hiding and not to suggest that at all, but I do think it will bring a heightened level of scrutiny. Yeah. And, and on that line, I, I had a piece uh, that ran uh, later this week on uh, a new platform that Salesforce is putting out, uh, the you know, big customer relations management uh, uh, software platform created a uh, something called the Salesforce Sustainability Cloud, uh, born out of their own need to collect and data more quickly and uh, actually uh, get data uh, quantity, quality, and speed up to that of the financial data. And uh, as a result of that, instead of having six or 12-month-old data, you have much more real-time data. And it, it is, as Patrick Flynn, their vice president for sustainability, told me, you can spend a lot more time looking forward and looking backwards, and I think that's all very much aimed at at, at the same goal here of, of being out ahead of the story, first of all, as a company in your actual performance, uh, but then being able to have a better story to tell the media or whoever asks. So, uh, Heather, you had a piece about uh, a, a growing initiative from the Climate Group, which is uh, putting on Climate Week uh, this next week in New York. Uh, about um, climate-friendly cooling. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Seems to be a hot topic. What's going on? <laughs> oh, yes, it is not a soap opera as the world warms. It is not a soap opera. It's reality. But um, yeah, so this is something that I first, to be quite honest, really started thinking about last year when I did a story on super pollutants. And we, you know, I was thinking about the things other than carbon dioxide, right? The equivalent, the, the E, the equivalents, the refrigerants, the methane, the, you know, the H, you know, everything um, that's, that's not necessarily carbon dioxide and, and the effect of that. And sort of the thread in that story was, okay, the world is warming, temperatures are rising, especially in emerging economies that um, do not have air conditioning, do not have chillers, do not have these these systems that we're relying on for comfort here in the, if, quote, developed, end quote, world, um, and that are in vitally important for not just people to be comfortable, but also for keeping food cool, for keeping medicines and vital vaccines um, from spoiling and so forth. And so the focus, uh, one of the focuses that I'm going to be paying a lot of attention to at, at the Climate Week activities next week is sort of the the chillers, the energy and sort of refrigerants associated with the stuff that keeps us cool. And so the climate group, which runs several campaigns, the, um, the most probably the most prominent of them being the RE100 campaign for renewable energy, they have an, another one called the EP100. It's focused on energy productivity. And as part of that, they're uh, basically issuing a challenge to companies to go into their, their facilities and find the sort of problems with the heating systems and the cooling systems um, and how and look, look for ways that they might be able to turn them over to thermal um, or electric, right? Because that's the other thread in California. You, you're, you, your focus has been on 
electrifying buildings, getting natural gas out of buildings and, and having the thermal loads handled by other things. So it's going to be a big focus of attention and discussion at Climate Week. And I, I am uh, going to be following it pretty closely. Yeah, and we'll have a little bit more on Climate Week coming up later in this program, an interview with Helen Clarkson, the CEO of the Climate Group, about what to expect uh, and uh, what, what will be happening in this massive event next week in New York. But uh, let's move over to uh, one more story uh, for this week uh, about Fab City, uh, which is this really interesting uh, initiative uh, born in, I think, in Brazil, Barcelona, sorry. I was going alphabetically from my brain and not actually reading, looking at the article here, but it you know, launched about five years ago, uh, sort of a maker movement uh, thing that uh, really you know, bring together uh, at the city level, how, how do you harness the innovations and, and uh, genius of, of a bunch of young inventors and give them the tools to, to lean into the things that they're thinking about now starting to uh, look at, uh, at, at this uh, through the lens of the circular economy and, and circular cities of tomorrow. And I should note that this started in Barcelona, not Brazil, and has since uh, uh, migrated to a number of other uh, places where we're starting to see fab cities, uh, including in, in the San Francisco-Oakland uh, Bay Area. So this is a really interesting development. You know, again, sort of natural harnessing uh, harnessing the local talent, but this whole notion of circular cities, I think, is pretty interesting and and sort of opaque uh, to to most people. How do you create a circular city? And so that's um, you know something that the Ellen MacArthur Foundation has been talking about for a while. They've got some reports out looking at this and how do you how do you take on the transition to a circular economy in a way that supports cities as they deliver against their own priorities things like housing and mobility and economic development so lots of interesting stuff here yeah i just want to mention that the specific goal of this initiative is to cha they're challenging cities around the world to produce everything they consume by 2054 so that's you know when you talk about what is a circular city mean well that's their sort of broad challenge and their broad um, you know, statement on what this should mean. And I believe they have 34 cities, count, uh, countries, and regions um, that are involved in this. And it's a great, it's a, just a great piece by one of our um, fast rising contributors, Shane Downing. And he took a look at um, you know, what this means. He, he also spoke with the people in Oakland about their, their experiences um, at the last big confab, which is in Paris. And and you mentioned, by the way, I will take issue with something you mentioned before, which was young inventors. And certainly uh, students and so forth are, are participating and, and they're absolutely focusing on college communities. But um, if you take a look at the pictures from the Paris event, there was all sorts of people in, involved there. And that was one of the remarks that the the Oakland organizer, Sal Bednards, he's with a micro manufacturing hub in West Oakland called Elevator Works. And he was struck by the what he called the community there, um, projects that were prototyping real ideas and um, they, they were real for him. So he was excited by that. Anyway, so I just, um, there's, there's not silver bullets, but there's like this inclusion and it's everybody, every bring everybody in and, and bring them in, and involve them in, in the solution. So just a really interesting initiative. I agree. 
Yeah, and I guess I'm at a point where an age where everybody's younger, so I guess I'm uh, reflecting that perspective. But yeah, you can, there's definitely a lot of age diversity going on here, as well there should be. Next up is the second of our Verge Vanguard honorees, Priyanka Bakaya. She started a company called Renewology at, as an MBA student at MIT. They're breaking down hard to recycle plastics and turning them into liquid fuels. She's just also started a organization called Renew Oceans, which is working on river leakage. In other words, making sure that plastics don't leak from the rivers into the oceans. Starting in India, here's Priyanka. I think the circular economy is broken right now for a number of reasons, and it's not just one reason, um, which means that it is, you know, there's no one silver bullet, um, and it's really, things are broken along the supply chain from how we create the plastics, um, to how we design them, to how we are collecting them, um, and then eventually um, what value we're deriving from them at the end of their life. And really, there needs to be innovation across that supply chain. And that's something that um, we are trying to address, uh, both at Renewology and Renew Oceans, is not just one part of that supply chain, but hitting multiple touch points um, to really make sure that, you know, that supply chain works and what's being created really does have a value um, that the market, you know, is creating from it so that it goes back um, into, you know, new products at the end of its life. So it's not an easy answer, but I think there's really sort of a lot of innovation required at each point of that supply chain um, from how we're making the plastics, how we're collecting them to how we're um, converting them into valuable products. Climate Week is about to get underway, a massive constellation of events taking place in and around New York City in parallel with the UN Secretary General's Climate Change Summit at UN Headquarters. Joining me now from London is Helen Clarkson, CEO of the Climate Group, which organizes this massive undertaking. Hey, Helen. Hi. So it seems that every year the Global Climate Summits gain status and import. What's the mood this time around? Yeah, I think we're really excited. It is definitely every year, like you say, we say this is the biggest one yet, but this really is. Some of that's to do with, you mentioned the UN Secretary General Summit, and there's a lot of interest and excitement uh, around that. But I also think things like the school strikes, Extinction Rebellion, they really have moved climate up the public agenda. And that's mean that alongside all the really high profile events that we'll be running, we've got lots of side events registered, over 300 already registered. And so there's lots of excitement and lots of things going on at different levels. Yeah, it's always that way. And it seems does seem to be a new level of excitement. I'm wondering about on the corporate side, are you seeing kind of the same companies that you and I have been seeing coming to these events forever? Or are there some new corporate faces or, and new sectors? Yeah, there are definitely some new uh, corporate faces. So some of our existing sponsors have come back, um, but we've also got new sponsors this year. So, for example, AT&T, who haven't sponsored us before, Unilever, who actually, you know, they've, they've been around on the scene for a long time, but uh, they'll be at the opening ceremony. So, you know, it's a mixture of new companies that maybe we haven't talked about before and then companies that maybe felt, well, we don't really need to be at Climate Week, uh, also saying, actually, this really is the time and place to come and talk about climate action. Yeah, but it's not just on the sponsorship front in terms of engagement in general. Uh, are you feeling that there is this step up um, 
beyond sort of what we've been seeing over the past couple of years? Yeah, definitely. And actually, to that point, you know, the events this year are definitely not just, you know, the sponsors on stage. We've got a really good variety of companies uh, coming along and talking about commitments, talking about 1.5 degrees C in a really meaningful way um, and starting to really, I think, get serious um, about what they're doing. And the geographies are really wide as well. So one of the events we're running um, on Wednesday afternoon, I was looking at the list this afternoon. We've got companies from India, from China. China haven't really um, shown up much at Climate Week before. So really good to see that geographical spread as well. How do you balance the urgency of the moment uh, with, uh, let's call it optimism, that we can actually get this done? Or is that even possible at this point? Or is it now all urgency all the time? Well, it's a bit of both. Um, one of the things that we're really going to talk about and our focus for the week is we're talking about the climate decade. So we're saying the 2020s have to be the climate decade. Um, it's the theme for the next 10 years. And that's saying, if you look at the science, if you look at getting to 1.5 degrees C, the next task is to halve emissions in the next decade. And the most of that work has to be done actually in the front half of the decade in order for the impacts to take effect and to get um, emissions down. So I think that gives you a story both of urgency and then the long-term scale and level of ambition. And when you start to think about what does it mean to halve emissions in a decade, you're talking about big economic societal changes with, with a goal in mind. And when we've seen changes like that before, they've been as a result of, of societal upheaval. This is saying this is the target and we've got to aim there and all our ambitions have got to be joining together. So that's how we're balancing the kind of urgency and longevity against one another. So when we talk uh, after Climate Week is over, what are you going to be able to tell me that this was a screaming success? In other words, what will success look like coming out of this week? Yeah, so there's two sorts of ways that we look at it. One of them is showcasing really amazing climate action that's happening, and that's about inspiring and giving confidence, particularly to governments. Um, you mentioned earlier the UN Secretary General, General Summit that's really the kind of starting gun for a 15-month process that is all about what are each individual government committed to under the Paris Agreement. We know they've got to come back uh, at the latest, December 2020, with their new commitments. And so it's starting off and saying, look, the rest of society is with you, cities, states, businesses, regional governments, giving them the confidence to go back and start to really look seriously at how they can ratchet up their commitments. And then the other part of it, which is a bit more the behind closed doors stuff, is we use it as an opportunity to bring people together who are taking climate action to learn from one another. We know that learning in person is a really critical part of this. We don't want everyone to be figuring out individually, well, how did you switch your fleet? So for the climate group itself, we run events for all our big commitment programs. We run you know very well, RE100, commitment to renewable electricity, EP100, commitment on doubling energy productivity, EV100, which is a commitment on corporate fleets. All of those will have their members meetings and people come together and share what they've been up to and learn from one another. And so we'll look at what's coming out of that. How do we see both more actions taken by our members? How does that roll through to them achieving their commitments um, on time or even early? So we look at it in those two um, distinct ways. And before I let you go, Helen, what are you most excited about this week? 
Well, I'm, I'm ex what am I most excited about? That's great. There's, there's a real variety where we've got sort of very high level events. You know, I'm running ones particularly looking at the climate decade. So I'm excited to do that because, you know, when you've been planning something for ages for it to actually come about. Um, and then this year, I'd really like to get out and get to some of the kind of more community events. We've got things like theatre screen, uh, you know, film screenings and theatre showings. And I think it's that buzz. And, and then a final thing is that we've got a campaign we've been working on, um, which has gone up already actually onto bus spots around New York, which is getting young people. We know that youth has been a big topic this year. There's a climate strike next Friday. Um, and it's been a partnership with something called Climate Speaks. And we've got young people to write poetry about climate change. And even just seeing those pictures coming through on Instagram of the, of the things going up at bus stops has made me excited to go and see some of those um, in person. So I'm just excited about all of New York coming together around this and showing that people really care about the climate and are really wanting to get together and be ambitious. Well, it's certainly going to be an interesting week. I'm looking forward to being there. And um, thank you for everything you've done to get us this far. You can learn more about Climate Week by going to climateweeknyc.org. Helen Clarkson is CEO of the Climate Group, which organizes Climate Week. Thanks so much, Helen. Thank you very much. See you there. So Heather, you and I will both be at Climate Week next week. Um, I've got a pretty busy week. I know you do too. Talk a little bit about what you'll be doing there. Oh gosh, <laughs> you're trying to embarrass me. Uh, I am doing a lot of things. As I mentioned earlier, I'm 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 going to be focusing on the the cooling events over at what they call the Hub. I think that's on Tuesday. Uh, on Sunday, I will be spending some time with uh, MIT Sol, which is sort of a fast pitch uh, startup competition, kind of like our Accelerate, and they have uh, some solutions on circular economy. So I hope to write about that. Um, on Monday, I will be at the opening ceremony of Climate Week, where I actually have the distinct honor of moderating. Yeah. I'm a little bit nervous. <laughs> so um, you, let's be I, more specific. You will be moderating a session about, about what? So my topic is corporates conquering tomorrow's toughest issues. And I have some really, really wonderful uh, panelists that I get to interview, including uh, the managing director of Ultratech Cement, um, a senior vice president from SD Lauder, and the um, executive director of the International Copper Association. And I'm really excited to say that the CEO of NG Group, uh, Isabel Kosher, is also on that panel. So very excited to uh, help close out their, uh, their first day. I will also be moderating a uh, panel on renewable energy at the Hub on Wednesday. So yeah, super busy. So Joel, hit me with what you're doing. Are we going to actually see each other? <laughs> well, we are actually because we're going to meet up on Wednesday to do that week's podcast. Uh, from oh uh, yeah, yeah. Don't forget about that. But um, right. yeah, so I'll, well, first of all, I'm going to come to the Climate Week opening ceremony, which is always a massive, star-studded event. Uh, we'll have Governor Newsom and lots of VIPs there, and uh, to cheer you on on stage, uh, moderating that panel. And then I'm going to hightail it from there over to uh, uh, the World Economic Forum has a uh, sustainable development. Uh, impact summit that's been running for the past few years and I've been one of the facilitators there I'm going to be facilitating a session on ending our dependence on disposability and I'll have Tom Zaki from uh, from Loop and we'll have uh, uh, see a uh, 
senior executive from uh, P&G and an interesting group there. So I'll be spending uh, much of Monday at the uh, World Economic Forum event there. And then, um, yeah, Tuesday, well, let's see, there's uh, this uh, an NG event. Uh, but I'm running a uh, <laughs> Tuesday evening, the Climate Cocktail Club, uh, combining at least two of my favorite things. Uh, and so... Um, <laughs> I saw that and yeah. I was very jealous. Yeah. I was like, how did he get that gig? <laughs> uh, you know, it's a, this is something that's uh, set up in London and it's now expanding the cities uh, around the world and they're opening, launching their New York chapter and um, hosting a panel with uh, some really interesting people there. That's uh, at the WeWork facility on Broadway, um, 41st. You can check out Climate Cocktail Club. I'm sure you can find that event. Um, World Business Council for Sustainable Development is having a breakfast. Um, I'll be part of that and meeting up with you to do the podcast. Then I have to leave temporarily New York to go up to Hartford for another GBAN meeting, Green Biz Executive Network meeting, but then coming back. And on Friday, a half day, I'll be hosting um, actually something I did very similar at the Global Climate Action Summit in San Francisco last September. This is an aviation summit over at the Javits mm -hmm. Center that's put on by United Airlines and the Port Authority of New York and New Jersey, um, looking at um, aviation and some of the fuels and the impacts and uh, how do we reduce all of that and, um, you know, is Greta Thunberg's uh, spawned... Uh, um, meme on flight shaming is that going to take off and if so uh you know how do we think about that anyway it's going to be a very busy week and very exciting week and so i will look forward to seeing you there somewhere and we'll close this episode with the last segment from one of our verge vanguard honorees Yurian Rouse, the co-founder and chief executive officer of Land Life Company from the Netherlands. He is seeking to plant trees on land equivalent in size to the United States plus China. And he's doing this as a for-profit business. Here's Yurian. What people typically want is to plant new trees. They don't want to contribute to an old project where the owner of the project gets a little bit more return. And that's the base on which all these current um, uh, credit systems are based off. Now, everybody in the industry knows that, that this is an issue and knows that we have to innovate. Oh, yeah, by the way, another issue is that technology is not used in the current situation. So if you want to get a credit from a forest, someone literally with a tape measurement will walk into the forest, measure a few trees, and then calculate how much tons of biomass is there, and then say, okay, this is a proxy for whatever, a thousand uh, acres. Now, today, of course, with satellites, with drone, LiDAR, you can do, you can measure every single tree. So the, the sector kind of has realized and acknowledged that we need to change, but that change will need to happen. So one of the things we just did is initiate a large um, multi-stakeholder coalition project where customers and regulators and certification bodies and, and, and NGOs and, 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 and all kinds of companies and organizations are sitting together to define the rules of this game going forward because that needs to be done. This sector um, bar is very low. Um, we, we, when we entered this sector, most of the reforestation work was done by extremely sympathetic, uh, small communities, mostly NGOs of sometimes 10, sometimes 30 people um, that would just plant trees, right? Or it would be local landscapers or sometimes a little bit larger scale, but none of these companies had a mindset of 
um, fact-based IP um, learning. So even in Australia, one of the larger reforestation companies, they would hire people to do certain things. And then at the end of the day, those people would just go through the gate and go home and would ask, like, well, where is the technology? You say, well, yeah, that's not ours. And it's very common, same here in, in, in the US. So, so we saw that, that basically there's no one had yet approached this from, oh, this is going to be a, a very large business. We're going to build uh, a company here with hundreds of, of, of millions of revenues, and we need to drive the performance up and the cost down by applying all the technology that we have. On the other side, and this is interesting because the Netherlands is after the US, the second biggest exporter of ag technology. So there was a lot of knowledge in, in the Netherlands in agriculture that can be used directly for nature reforestation. So here we had an incredibly big gap of all this, this ag tech and a lot of VC money going into new ag tech. Um, and on the other hand, this sector where no one was using anything. So what we are currently doing is when we reforest a new piece of land, we do all kinds of information um, gathering um, exercises. So we, whatever, six, seven different layers of, of information, which could be the hydrology of the land, very important. Is it north, south, facing, sunshine? How is the water running when it rains? The soil type, sand, clay, loam. Um, where do we see existing uh, vegetation? Always a good indicator for where you can plant. Um, of course, historic climate, but also very important projected future climate. Um, and there's a few institutions like Woods Hole Institute here in the US that do a lot of research on what the future climates will be in certain areas. Um, animal presence, potential damage. So all those information layers together are going into an algorithm. And um, of course, it's also important where you are, what are the, the, the native, the local species you can use. And that spits out an ideal reforestation plan. So it comes up with a certain density of trees, the species of the trees, where the trees should be located exactly on the geolocation. Should it be clusters or blankets? So that you can imagine there's an incredible amount of choices you can make if you re reforest a piece of land. Well, that's our 350 podcast for this week. You can go to greenbiz.com slash 350, and you'll find lots more about the organization, stories, and events we mentioned this time around. While you're there, check out our free e-newsletters. We publish a different one Monday through Friday. That's five, count them, five weekly newsletters in all. You can go to greenbiz.com slash newsletters, and you'll find out more about them. Our email is 350 at greenbiz.com. Heather and I will be back next week, as we said, from Climate Week in New York City with another edition of Green Biz 350. Until then, from all of us here at Green Biz Group, I'm Joel McCower. Thanks so much for tuning in.